My apologies to Marv and Carol for not including their travel in my prayer this evening. The good news is that our God and Father knows each one of us by name and our circumstances, so we need to remember one another before his throne. My apology. The scripture reading tonight is taken from the book of Romans. We're going to read God's word as we find it in Romans chapter 16 and read together the first 16 verses. It's found on page 1768 in the Pew Bibles, page 1768. Hear now this word the Lord speaks to us. I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church in Sincrea. I ask you to receive her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints, and to give her any help she may need from you, for she has been a great help to many people, including me. Greet Priscilla and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus. They risked their lives for me. Not only I, but all the churches of the Gentiles are grateful to them. Greet also the church that meets at their house. Greet my dear friend Epinetus, who was the first convert to Christ in the province of Asia. Greet Mary, who worked very hard for you. Greet Andronicus and Junius, my relatives who have been in prison with me. They are outstanding among the apostles, and they were in Christ before I was. Greet Ampliatus, whom I love in the Lord. Greet Urbanus, our fellow worker in Christ, and my dear sister, my dear friend, Stachys. Greet Apelles, tested and approved in Christ. Greet those who belong to the household of Aristobulus. Greet Herodian, my relative. Greet those in the household of Narcissus, who are in the Lord. Greet Tryphena and Tryphosa, those women who work hard in the Lord. Greet my dear friend Persis, another woman who has worked very hard in the Lord. Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, and his mother, who has been a mother to me too. Greet Asyncritus, Phlegon, Hermes, Patrobus, Hermes, and the brothers with them. Greet Philologus, Julia, Nereus, and his sister, and Olympus, and all the saints with them. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the churches of Christ send greetings. Note the concluding exhortation. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the churches of Christ send greetings. May the Lord bless this word to us this evening. Dear congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, I don't pretend to be able to read your mind. But I do have the suspicion that among thoughts that may have gone through your mind is, is he going to read all of these names? And who are these people anyway? This is a museum, a tour through a museum, a bunch of names of members of the churches in Paul's day and in Rome, but unknown to you and me, not a few names that you would find on the top ten list of names parents choose these days for their children. I don't know whether you've ever heard a sermon on Romans 16. You know, pastors love the book of Romans. It's a grand representation of the gospel of grace, grace alone, Christ alone, through faith alone. And we love to hear uh, the declaration of all that which God has done for us. 
but I have never heard actually in my lifetime, and not, I'm not a, a spring chicken any longer, a sermon on Romans 16 or in Romans 16, 16. Maybe you're even asking yourself this question with a bit of an exclamation point behind it, and it's this, I hope he isn't going to tell us that we need literally in the Cottage Grove Christian Reformed Church to commence, if we haven't already, the practice of embracing one another, greeting one another by name, and with a so-called holy kiss. What I'm saying is, this is a passage that reminds me of an expression I once heard used by Kevin DeYoung, if you know who that is. He says, some uh, words that we often use are so elusive They're bandied about without definition that they're like things that you put in your junk drawer. You know, we all have them in our kitchen, a junk drawer where a bunch of stuff, we don't know what to do with it, we're not quite ready to throw it away, so we stick it in there and that's the last we hear of it. Well, I'm here tonight to say to you in Christ's name and with the authority of his apostle whom he commissioned, the apostle Paul, there are no junk drawer passages in the word of the Lord. Paul, who represents grandly the gospel of salvation in the opening chapters, thought it important in the latter part of this epistle to give the congregation instruction. We even read the passage from Romans 12 where the apostle Paul makes a turn. He set forth the mercies of God toward us in Christ Jesus, and then he has that word, therefore, if this is true, then offer your bodies in view of God's mercy as living sacrifices of thanksgiving, which is your spiritual worship, and know that good and perfect will of God for your life. And I'm going to propose to you that the apostle gives us here in this passage not only an example, an apostolic example, but an apostolic exhortation that we cultivate among us a gospel grace, that's what it is, that answers to the gospel itself in the way we come to know each other, if possible, even by name. He doesn't just say, thank the friends and that's the end of the story. No, he gives the actual names of not a few men and not a few women that we cultivate the practice of showing mercy, kindness, consideration to one another in knowing one another's names, if possible. Sometimes that's difficult. The larger the congregation, the more difficult it is. And that we be affectionate. Now, I'll come to the question a little later in the sermon as to whether that requires a holy kiss planted on the cheek on one cheek and then the other, which was the practice in the culture, still is, by the way, in the Middle East to the present day. And I'll probably comfort your hearts that you needn't necessarily, literally, kiss one another, as some Christian traditions have sought to honor this passage by exchanging what they call the kiss of peace among the brethren, or in the context of the communion service, some sort of expression of brotherly and sisterly affection that we show toward one another in the Lord. Now, I said a moment ago, I have two points tonight, and my first point is I want us to look at the apostle's example. 
And the second point has to do with the apostles' exhortation that arises out of the example that he sets for us. Now, a little comment on that phrase, apostolic example. I've heard it said, and maybe you have too, uh, in respect to some things that Paul writes under inspiration in the New Testament, that that's just Paul's apostolic opinion. That's not the word of the Lord. We can sort of overlook that. He slipped a little at this point, and hence we needn't regard what he has to say as from the Lord. Well, I'm here tonight to tell you there are no such things as apostolic opinions. Even as the Father has apostled me, sent me, says Jesus, so I apostle, commission, send you to speak in my name. And those who hear you, they hear me. So we have to listen up together as God's people tonight to see what the Lord is saying through his servant, the apostle, by the example that he sets for us. And so I want to spend a little time at the outset with uh, verses 1 through 15. Now, don't worry, I'm not going to try to identify all the names of who these people were. I've already mentioned there are not a few men. There are quite a good number of women. As a matter of fact, he lists, identifies no less than 33 names. Now you have a homework assignment. You can go and see whether my math is correct. But I think, if I have it right, 33 names. Of those names... Seventeen were in the congregation in the vicinity of Rome. Seven were women. There were nine women mentioned altogether, and four of those women are said by the apostle, whom he identifies by name as women who worked hard with him in the gospel. Commentators tell me that if you study these names, you'll find that there are Jewish names, There are Greek and Roman names. There are even names suggesting that some of these individuals may well have been slaves and may well have served in the emperor's or the imperial court. They're people of great reputation. They're also people who are unknown and of lesser reputation. It doesn't matter. Notice, as I said a moment ago, that with respect to all of them, he names names. Now, why is that so important? Well, you know, a person's name is important to them. We have a pastor. I love my pastor, and so I don't mean to speak ill of him. I don't speak ill of him, but uh, when he was first serving in our congregation, he kept mispronouncing our daughter's name. Her name is Carolyn, and he kept referring to her as Caroline. Finally, I knew it disturbed her peace, so I went to the pastor, and I said, Pastor, it's Carolyn, not Caroline. Uh, Even the way we say a name, that's why I tried to get the names right tonight, but I'm not sure I did, even in the congregational prayer. The Apostle Paul identifies very particular persons, men and women, of great and lesser significance from a whole variety of social backgrounds, levels of wealth, they're all precious and important to him. None of them 
is let you might even say, this is something I've often heard, well, if you start naming names, I say to my students in seminary, one of your ministries is what I would call the ministry of encouragement. You need to mark, take note, thank, even by name, people who contribute, who labor, who grant their gifts in service to the church. But we usually say, well, you know, what if you miss one? <laughs> even as I forgot two names in the prayer this evening that could easily be the occasion for a little unhappiness or a sense of omission or neglect to identify me in terms of what I've contributed. Well, the apostle's example here seems to be one that suggests that he was willing to take the risk and even to come to know and identify with precision the names that he mentions. Now, there's some further things that I would like you to notice not all of the names, but a few of them I want to call to your attention because they're somewhat controversial. Uh, in verse 1, he commends to the congregation our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church in Sincreae, and I ask you to receive her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints and to give her any help she may need from you, for she's been a great help to me, to many people, including me. Now, we can glean from that that Phoebe was important to the Apostle Paul, that she had considerable means, but she was generous in the use of those means in supporting him and the work of the ministry, the church, and its mission. It's also interesting that she's called a deacon, a diakonos. That's the word here for deacon in the history of the church. You're probably thinking, as one of my teachers in high school once said to me in class when I was misbehaving, can you imagine that, Dr. Venema, misbehaving? We call this teacher the bear because he was a fearful, big, berry kind of guy. He says to me, Venema, you're, you're on thin ice. And the whole class went silent, myself included. I might be on thin ice tonight too when I say Phoebe was a deacon. But I hasten to add, the word deacon in the New Testament is a common word. It's a word used for a whole variety of servants and services rendered by the people of God in a diversity of ways and circumstances. It's only used in two passages as a technical word the way we often use it. If I say to you, do you have any deacons? Or would the deacons raise their hand, they, you'd know who they would be. Very particular office bearers ordained to a particular office with the elders. And the two passages are 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1. And so it's a case of misappropriation to say, well, Phoebe was a deacon. And so we should have women who are deacons in the church today. That's a fallacious argument. It's like taking the word elder. If I was to say, well, I'm a little bit of an elder statesman at the seminary as far as the professors are concerned, you wouldn't think office of elder. You'd think he's getting to be an older guy. He's been there and around for a long time. It's time for him to retire. The word elder, as in our language, elderly, is not always a technical word. And so also here. Now, there's another instance of this that needs notice. 
And that's in verse 7 where the apostle greets Andronicus and Junius. There's a little technical question in the text as to whether Junius is a male or a female name. It just has one letter different in the Greek language. It's a little bit like, if I may use an analogy, I have a granddaughter, one of twins, two girls, and her name is Sydney. And she happens to be named, though a female, after her grandfather. However, her name is spelled Sydney with a Y. His name is spelled Cindy with an I. Uh, because that distinguishes male from female. Now, the debate is, is Junius a female name? Because he says, my relatives who have been in prison with me, they are outstanding among the apostles. Now, I find it very interesting that in the early church for the first 13 centuries, most readers of Romans 16 thought Junius was a woman. Then for a very long time, they said, no, that's a male name if you spell it Junius, not Junia, and therefore not a woman. Why is that important? In more recent times, people claim that it is a woman's name. Why would that be? Well, if women, a woman, Junius, was an apostle, now we're on that thin ice again and in delicate territory and area of controversy, then maybe women, if they can be apostles as well as deacons, think Phoebe, they can also be ordained to the ruling office in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. But the argument, once again, is much too quick. Much too quick. The word apostle is not used in the New Testament for exclusively the twelve. It's a word used in a variety of passages. Check out a glossary or concordance, and you'll discover it. It's often rendered in English, not apostles, but messengers. That's what it means. I was with my wife in Muir Woods, if you know where that is, in north of San Francisco. Beautiful redwood sequoia trees, quite a beautiful place. And they had a plaque there because Franklin Delano Roosevelt, his president, uh, had uh, at one point been an advocate of something called today the United Nations. And they had a meeting after the war in which uh, his, uh, he was no longer alive, but his uh, advocacy of the United Nations was noted. And so there was a plaque there in bronze, and it said, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, an apostle. Was he an apostle in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ? No, he was a messenger. He was an advocate. And so what we have here, whatever you do with either of these names, is the Apostle Paul recognizing that men as well as women were precious to him, valuable, and doing important work, utilizing their gifts in the service of Christ. doesn't mean that no distinction can be made between those who are properly, according to biblical qualifications ordained to office in the church. I'm probably on safe ground by arguing that here tonight. I don't know. Maybe someone will accost me, take me by the scruff of my neck after the sermon this evening. But I just want to add this quick comment. Don't misunderstand me. The women are not to be ordained to the particular offices that exercise authority over the whole congregation. 
They are not marginal. They are not insignificant. They are not second class. And I think sometimes in all of the debates and arguments back and forth about the ordination of women or the non-ordination of women, uh, we've opened ourselves to the vulnerability of neglecting to follow Paul's apostolic example. He wants the whole church, even in 2019, as we gather here in Cottage Grove, to remember these people by name, these women by name. They did important work in bringing the message of the gospel in their office as believers. They were gathered with and worked alongside and made an invaluable contribution to the life and well-being of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, enough of that. I probably spent more time on the apostles' example, but I want to draw upon that time we've spent to expound what he means when he exhorts, at the end of this passage, all in the congregation, all believers, you are to greet one another with a holy kiss. Now, there are four times Paul says this at the end of his epistles. There's one instance at the end of 1 Peter where the apostle Peter says, greet one another with the kiss of love. And that's important because the kiss is an outward manifestation of an inward grace. It's a way of expressing affection, warm-hearted love toward a fellow brother, fellow sister in the church, which is a household, the family of God, where all the names, as I mentioned this morning, our Lord Jesus Christ doesn't look upon us as a nameless company of persons unknown to him. He knows each one of us by name. So names are important. You need to greet one another where possible as a brother, a sister known to you, recognized by you, toward whom you show appropriate affection. I have to go on and add some additional comments at this point. I don't know if any of you are familiar with the old Phillips paraphrase of the New Testament. Sort of like the message today. It's not really a proper translation. It's a a paraphrase. It tries to capture the meaning in modern idiom and changes the words. So he captures, I think rather interestingly, what Paul is suggesting when he says, greet each other all around with a hearty handshake. That might be a modern way of a form of answering to the norm. How it is done varies from place to place. Circumstances play a role. Custom and practice. What's an appropriate way of acknowledging someone by name and showing them a proper appreciation and love in the Lord? Can't help but think of a college president, friend of my father's. My father, by the way, was very good at names. It's a good gift to have in the ministry. If you're a shepherd, under the over-shepherd, the chief shepherd, you want to be like the shepherd as much as possible, though you'll never, never get 
to be as perfect as he is. And he knows them by name, so should you. Well, in any case, his friend of his, this college president, I won't say who it is, you can probably sort it out. Some of you are graduates of the institution, as am I. Now I've given the store away. But the president, when they would have uh, college activities, he would have a large crowd of people would come and they'd have a reception and he'd see someone across the way. I think I know that person. Can't remember their name. What, wh who is that over there? And then he would be told and he'd cross the room and uh, embrace or shake heartily the hand of whomever it was and use their name. <laughs> that was a little bit disingenuous, but at least he understood that people and their names are not easily separated. And if you continually get them mixed up and don't get them right and take them upon your lips as best as you can, you could get yourself in trouble. But now to that matter of the kiss again. You know, as I do, that some of us northern European folk, if you're in that category, are not exactly the most demonstrative in the display of our affection and love for one another. In my wife's family, uh, it took, oh, 30 years before I could hug my mother-in-law upon leaving, departing, because it was just uh, not so... And to this day, they, they really are not the most uh, uh, touchy-feely sort of people. By the way, by the way, if you were to literally apply this text... In this present society and culture, whether as office bearers in the church or as brothers and sisters in the church, it could be very easily mistaken. This is an argument for finding an appropriate way that puts no one under inappropriate suspicion. I can, just by way of illustration, tell you a little story. I had the privilege at one time in my life to go to the country of Korea. And this is not anything against the Koreans, dear brothers and sisters, many of them uh, precious to the Lord, precious to us. But their culture is a different culture than ours, and there are a diversity of cultures, as you well know. Well, in that culture, here's what happens to me. The president of the seminary where I'm speaking says, well, we have to have our picture taken. They love to take pictures, and so we've got to have a picture. So, okay, uh, we, we stand in front of the photographer to have our picture taken. And he takes me by the hand. Oh, that's a little different, but okay, that's fine. We'll hold hands for the picture. Well, that was only the beginning of it. He didn't let go. He walked all over the grounds holding my hand. There we were, hand in hand. Now, I don't mean to be facetious, but in our culture, two men walking down the street hand in hand, that means something. No? Well, it does. And so we have to find an appropriate way. But we have to find a way. And this is not a small thing. You may say, well, this is very interesting, Dr. Venema, that you should take the time to expound Romans 16, and particularly verse 16, uh, in our presence this evening. But as we go away, what difference does it make? Well, I'm here to tell you that in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, the household of faith 
where we are the ambassadors and representatives of the Savior. He doesn't think your name is unimportant. Why should you? He doesn't think your brother and sister should go nameless. Why should you? He delights in those whom he graces with his love and mercy. Why shouldn't you? He takes note, he even rewards, as the scriptures tell us, those who serve well and faithfully with a crown of righteousness. He takes note. He's not disinterested. He's not indifferent to. He doesn't walk on the other side of the street. And I don't know what your circumstance is as a congregation, but I'm sure, as is true of any family, the larger it is, the more likely it is that there's someone whose hand I'm not so sure I'm going to shake, whose presence I'm not so sure I welcome, who is to me not one toward whom I would show the kind of brotherly, sisterly affection that befits their status as a member of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. You know how that goes. You see them in the aisle in the grocery store and go another way. Not good. It's not good. Now, I'm not suggesting ignore the point of distinction or in dispute between you or anything of that sort. I'm not belittling the circumstances that might give rise to difficulty in this regard. But I am suggesting to you that as a congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, we should be those who greet one another with appropriate affection in the Lord, who are appreciative and prize what this brother, this sister, brings, contributes to our life together as God's people. You know, in our culture, I am told that the number one leading cause, increasingly, of death of many younger people is in part due to loneliness. They have their Instagram, their Twitter, their Twitter account, their Facebook, whatever it is, and even have a whole company of so-called friends. They don't have any real friends. They have no true family. I think this is one of the great witnesses of the Church of the Lord Jesus Christ increasingly in our culture. Here you have an oasis in the desert where there are people who really do care about each other. And they take the trouble to express it when the opportunity presents itself. That would make an extraordinary impression in the kind of world, culture, society in which we find it. It would adorn the gospel with the gospel grace of treating one another, greeting one another by name with appropriate warmth and affection. May God grant it that it may be cultivated among you in your dealings and relationships one with another. To his glory and for your blessing. Amen. Let's pray. 
Our Father in heaven, we know this passage is one that is easily overlooked or set aside, and yet it speaks to us powerfully of your grace, your love, your tender-hearted affection for all of your people, each one whom you know by name, for whom you laid down your life, and whom you even, through your servant, among them name particularly the contributions that they make to our life together. May that kind of gospel grace be represented in the way we greet, treat, and name one another, and acknowledge with gratitude the work that we do together in service to you and to others in your name. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.